All right, this morning, good to be with you, good to be with you, glad you are here. How many kids we got in the room? Make some noise. Woo! Awesome. Glad you guys are here. And just as Stephen said, hey, I am not afraid of the wiggles and the kids. I've got three kids under the age of five, so I am oblivious, all right? If a baby starts crying, I will probably grab a diaper and a bottle and try to find the baby. So it's just, it's just part of it. So glad you guys are with us this morning. Well, um, we're continuing in our series, Jesus Unfiltered. And what we've been doing is we've been walking through Mark and looking at some interactions with Jesus where they've been unexpected um, and just some things that we could learn from and just Jesus' ministry and service. And so we're going to continue in that this morning. So we're going to be Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. So you're with us in the room or if you're with us online, get your Bibles out, get your YouVersion apps open and go ahead and get there and we'll jump in and here in just a second and we'll look at that passage. So when I was in college, I spent a summer as a camp counselor. Uh, so I was in a cabin with 20 to 25, 20 to 25, 14 to 16 year old boys. All right, so it was me and about four other college kids. We were counselors. And this cabin, I mean, it was an interesting mix of BO and Axe body spray that I'm pretty sure has seared itself into my brain at this point that I can like, I think I can taste it when I talk about it. It's just disgusting. I will, I've never worn Axe body spray again. Um, so, but one of the things that we would do is once we got the, the guys in their bunks at night, we would spend some time, we would pray, um, and then we would kind of have a, a late night discussion time. So we would just kind of have these different topics, have these different questions that we would throw out to them. Um, and I, I'd like to stand before you today and say, I really use this time as to talk about these deep theological questions that were just life-changing and inspiring. Um, but my favorite question to ask was, who was the greatest superhero? All right, so if you think about it, if you put all the superheroes together in an arena and you just said, every man for himself, go, who comes out on top? All right, so some of you kids are already thinking right now, you've already got an idea of who that might be. All right, so, but this was a huge discussion, right? This lasted for days. I mean, there was guys yelling and screaming at each other. Just, I mean, they were just, it would get intense, which was probably a sign that I should have stopped asking the question. But I threw that grenade and watched the carnage every week because it was awesome. Right? So I just had to do it. So, but one of the things that I learned from this conversation is that we as people, and we know this, and we have a fascination with power. I mean, obviously with superheroes and superpowers, I mean, that's obviously a big thing. We love to, to watch the movies and things like that. But we know, we know superheroes aren't real. Well, except for Scott Marsh. But other than that, superheroes aren't real. Um, and, and so, but we still have a fascination with power, or at least positioning ourselves at the table with those who are in power. I mean, it's human nature. It's, it's you know, some of us, we never really grow out of the, the uh, want to be, be at the cool kids table at lunch. We kind of never grow out of that. So, but what Jesus does is he confronts this nature head on in this passage that we're going to read this morning. This desire to be great, this desire for power. And so he's going to confront that. All right? So what I want to do is I'm just going to read the whole passage. So Mark 10, 35 through 45, I'm going to read the whole thing. Then we'll come back and we'll talk about a little context. And then we'll talk about some things that jump out to us in the passage. All right? So let's jump in. Let's read it. And then we'll talk some more. All right? Um, verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, 
You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the other ten felt indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and their people in high position exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Rather, whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, so before we jump in, let's talk about a little context. Where are we at in the story? So obviously, James and John asked Jesus a question. So did this question just come out of the blue? Like, what, what led up to that? So I want to pay attention to that because I think it's important. And generally, context is pretty important when we're reading Scripture. So it's something we need to pay attention to. So what we do know is that Jesus, if we've talked about these last few weeks, has been traveling, he's been going around teaching, performing miracles, and serving. And so Jesus is continuing to do that. And now Jesus and his disciples and the crowd, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're heading, and this is actually, Jesus is getting to the end of his earthly ministry. We're about to end, get into the last week of his, of his life, right before he's crucified. So as, he's, as they're on the way to Jerusalem, this is the triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday. This is what we're going to celebrate in a few weeks. So as they do that, as they're heading to Jerusalem, Jesus kind of takes his disciples and he pulls them aside, gets a little huddle up, and he says, and he has a little conversation with him. All right, so when we see that conversation, back up in verse 32. So let's read that to get a little context. Now they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. And they they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise from the dead. All right, so this is the third time in which Jesus has foreshadowed his death in the book of Mark. But this time is different. This time he actually puts a timeline on it. He says, hey, by the way, I know I've talked about this, but actually this is about to happen. So get ready because we're on the way to Jerusalem. And when we get there, it's all going down. So if you're a disciple, you've been with Jesus for literally years at this point for him talking about this, what's coming. So if you're the disciple and you're thinking, okay, Jesus has been talking for years about this kingdom that is coming. He's going to die. He's going to, he's going to, be, he's going to ra- be raised again from the dead. Like, all this is going to happen. So now's your chance. Now's your moment. Like, you've spent all these years talking about it and thinking about it. It's time to be prepared. So you don't want to miss the opportunity. You don't want to miss the boat. In their mind, the kingdom is about to be here on this earth, and Jesus is about to reign. So James and John jump on the opportunity, and that's where we get the question that we read in verse 35. This is James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Okay, so the first reaction when you read this question is, obviously, that's pretty brave. 
right, to ask Jesus this, right? And that's pretty ambitious. That took some, that took some guts, all right? So, I mean, just to sit there and think, hey, I know, Jesus, I know you just talked about, like, you're about to be spit on, you're about to be whipped, you're about to be mocked, you're about to die, but hey, in between all that, if you get a break, can you do something for me? Right? It seems pretty, pretty, uh, pretty ambitious to ask that question. But that's exactly what they do because they want to be great in the kingdom. Matthew records this interaction in chapter 20, verse 20. And there we see that James and John's mother actually asked Jesus this question. So we don't know if um, uh, J- James and John's mother asked the question and Mark, when he was writing his gospel, chose to attribute it to the source Uh, which was James and John, or if both the mother and the brothers asked the question, we don't know. But my first question is, really, James and John, your mom? (laughs) Like, you got your mom doing your dirty work for you? Like, come on. So, well, and also this shows me that, uh, that helicopter parenting is not a new thing. So mama is trying to take care of her boys, right? She's making sure her boys are going to be set up in the kingdom, right? So that's what we see. Uh, We see that in Matthew when we read that account. So, But what we see here is two guys jockeying for the position of power. Because culturally we know and historically we know that the seat on the right hand of the king is a seat of power and prominence. And the seat on the left is only second to it. So essentially, they're calling shotgun. Right? When I was a kid and when you want to ride in the front seat of the car, you don't want to get stuck in the back, you call shotgun. That's how you got in the front seat. You'd be the first one to call shotgun. So James and John see their opportunity. They're like, hey, No one else is talking about those seats. We're going to call shotgun. Nobody else wants them. We want them. So that's what they do. They jump on the opportunity. And then we see Jesus' response to this question. And this is where I want us to look at. And this is where we see Jesus' response as being unexpected. And we see it in verse 38. Let's read that together. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or sit on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Okay, so the first thing I noticed about this passage was was honestly something that I never noticed before. And side note here, this this is the beauty of Scripture. You can read something for literally years, thousands and thousands of times, and you can read it one time, and still something new is going to pop up. And that's what's, that's what's the beauty, what's the wonderful thing about Scripture. And that's what happened to me in this passage. So what I noticed is, is that Jesus doesn't correct their ambition to be great in his kingdom. He doesn't correct it. He doesn't say, hey, James and John, that question that you just asked, that's pretty sinful. That's prideful. Like, that's inappropriate. You shouldn't have asked that. Like, hey, I know your mom is here. Maybe you should ask her to teach you how to share. Like, no, he doesn't do any of that. Well, how does he respond? He says that you don't, that you don't know what you are asking. They don't know what they're asking because they don't know what it means to be great in the kingdom. They don't know how to do it. So what Jesus says is he sees their desire to be great. He sees their desire to be great in the kingdom, and he realizes that they don't know how to do it. So he sees they want to be on the path to greatness, but they don't know how to get there. So he helps them. He gives them directions. He says, if you want to be great, this is how you do it. And here Jesus says that to be powerful and great in his kingdom, you must be subject to suffering, mockery, pain, and even death. 
Okay, so that seems a little counterintuitive, right? So like if you are seating, seated at the right hand or the left hand of the king in, in, in the kingdom, like those, those seats of power and prominence should come with protection, right? It seems like we run to the powerful to protect us from our enemies. But what Jesus is saying is, so, nope, sorry. His seat of power and prominence is not to be subject to those things, mockery, pain, even death. Is not to be above them, but it's, be, but it's to be subject to them. The next unexpected truth we see here in this passage is to be great in Jesus' kingdom. We must join in his suffering, just as he talked about, that we are, we are to be subject to those things. To be great in Jesus' kingdom, we must join in his suffering. Because here's the hard truth about following Jesus, is that it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. And, and Listen, we get this in every other aspect of our life, right? If we know we want to be great in our careers, we know that it's going to cost us. It's going to take hard work. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of hours putting in the hard work to be great and be successful in your career. We get that. With our finances, with our relationships, with our health in the gym, like we know that we're not going to just walk into the gym and just start lifting what we want to be lifting. It's going to take effort. It's going to take time. It's going to take hard work. And our faith is the exact same way, even more so. In, in our pursuit of holiness and righteousness in our lives, we will encounter suffering. We will encounter hardships. We're going to have to put in the hard work. And when Jesus talks about drinking the cup that we will drink, that he will drink, that is the cup of suffering. See, remember on the night before he is to be betrayed, he goes to the garden and he prays. He prays for a few things. But one of the things that he does is he prays that the cup of suffering would pass from him. Right? He says hey, he knows exactly what he's about to step into. He knows the, the type of death that he's about to experience. And he asks his heavenly father, hey, could we maybe do this a different way? Because this is about to be really bad. And I love this moment in scripture because it is one of the best glimpses of Jesus' humanity. I mean, it is just a raw conversation between a, a dad and a son and it's pretty transparent and it's pretty awesome so that is the cup of suffering that he's talking about the baptism reference here is the baptism into death to be great in the kingdom will require putting to death our own desires sin nature and old flesh we're to live as a new creation and for many followers of jesus today around the world and in in, in history it has required their lives Right, to follow Christ has required their lives. And the fact that that is not a reality in this country today is one of the greatest freedoms that we take for granted. And we take this freedom for granted. And to be honest, it's a, it's a freedom that we could lose, by the way. And we have to think about that as a people. How are we going to respond what is it going to look like for us personally if it becomes illegal to walk through the doors of this building on a Sunday morning? If it becomes illegal to open God's word or pray or share your faith? We have to think about that. How are we as people going to respond? James and John responded that they are able to do as Jesus did. And Jesus acknowledges that that's correct because James is soon killed. Um, just a few, few years later in AD 44 by Herod Agrippa. And then John, we know, is, is probably one of the last apostles to die. 
because he's exiled to the island of Patmos, and there um, he is given a vision of things to come, the kingdom. He writes the book of Revelation, um, and this is just Chris Turner's speculation, so it's probably not worth much, but here you go. Like, I can't imagine, I just, I just imagine that when John is sitting on that island all alone, and he gets the vision of the Holy Spirit, and he gets a vision of the kingdom to come, and he gets special privilege and access to the kingdom. He can't help but think back about this conversation that he has with Jesus back in Mark 10. And he can't help but just smile a little bit and say thank you. Because he is given special access to the kingdom. And he writes those things down for us to read in the book of Revelation. So, for us, we should share James and John's desire to be great. Right? It's James and John's heart behind this question is not wrong. We know that because Jesus doesn't correct them. They're, they're on the right path. They're thinking the right thing. They want to be great in the kingdom to come. They want to do great things for Christ. And you and I, we should want to be great in the kingdom as well. We should look to them as an example in that. Because we know that Jesus is coming back. We know that he's coming and he's going to set this place up the way that it was supposed to be. Right? We know that he is going to set his kingdom up here on earth. And we know from Scripture that, at, that oh, those in Christ, we are co-heirs in that inheritance. And because of Christ, we can be part of that kingdom to come. So what does it mean to be great in the kingdom? So the New Testament talks over and over again about eternal rewards. Eternal rewards. Now, I've been around church for a lot of years. I have probably been in hundreds of thousands of sermons, conferences, small group studies, uh, I mean, just conversations. You know, I have, I can't remember very many sermons about eternal rewards. I don't know. Maybe you're, maybe you're different than me. And I don't know why that is the case. I don't know if it just feels a little weird talking about treasures in heaven, if it feels like it's a little kind of works-based thing. I don't know if it just feels awkward. I don't know what it, I don't know. But what I do know is that Jesus talked about them. And in fact, it's mentioned in 24 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And just a rough, quick count in the gospel, Jesus mentions it 25 times in his teachings. So it's obviously something that's pretty important. Here's just a couple examples of Mark right here, right around our passage. In Mark 9, 41, it says, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of the name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. In Mark 10, 21, when Jesus is talking to the rich young, rich young ruler, it says, looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. I mean, this is just a couple examples in Mark, just right here, but there's so many more. And obviously, this is not talking about salvation, right? So hear me on that. This is not talking about earning your salvation, because we know that your eternal life Salvation is not a reward, it's a gift, right? It's not about anything that you do, you don't earn it, right? It's, it's because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But when it comes to eternal rewards, they are mentioned in Scripture and are rewarded in heaven as a return for your investment of obedience. Right? When we do the things that God has called us to do, when we do the things that Scripture called us to do, it's clear we will be rewarded for that. We know this because it says because of your salvation, there are good works prepared for us to do in advance. 
So we're supposed to do those things. And when we're obedient in those things, God will reward our faithfulness. So we see in the next verses, we'll see Jesus saying that if you want to be prominent in my kingdom, here's how you do it. Here's an example of, how, of one of these rewards that you can receive. In verse 41, hearing this, the other ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and their people in high position exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Rather, whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you shall be slave of all. So to be great in his kingdom, we must serve like he served. And here's the heart behind what Jesus wanted to teach his disciples that day and ultimately for us today. Is listen, the world has a way of doing things. The world has a way of doing things. And he's saying, hey, the world's going to do it this way, but if you're going to follow me, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it differently. And the world's going to say, hey, if you want to get power, if you want to be prominent, you're going to have to step on other people to get there. That's how you get it. That's what the world's going to tell you. But what Jesus is going to say is that in his kingdom, not only are you not going to step on other people to get there, you're probably going to get stepped on. That's the way it's going to work. And that's the example that he gives us. Jesus is our ultimate example. Because one of the best things about this passage is this is not Jesus saying, hey, by the way, you go do this, you have fun, I'm out, I'm not doing that, good luck. What do we see? He ends in verse 45. It says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the author and perfecter of servant leadership. You know, this verse is thought by many, including me, that this, is, this verse right here, 45, is kind of the hinge point. This is, this is the subject, the thesis of the whole book of Mark. If someone asks me, hey, what, what's, the, what's the purpose of Mark, the book of Mark? I would read them 1045, That's this, this verse. Because what we see before this verse is Jesus' focus on his life and ministry and service and after this verse, we see his focus shift to his death. And let's think about this word ransom for a moment. The word ransom. It's only used one other time in the Bible. So it's only used twice. The Greek here is lutron, all right? So at first, I thought that kind of sounded like a planet from Star Wars. Um, but which, if that was my first thought, which is probably wrong. I'm working through it, all right? So, but what, it's, what, this ver what it means is the price that was paid to free slaves, hostages, or others. That's what that word means. Listen, there was a price on each and every single one of us. Sin put a price on each one of our heads from birth that you and I, we could never dream of repaying, ever. There's nothing that we could do, ever. We couldn't go to enough church. We can't go to church enough. We can't go on enough mission trips. We can't give enough money. We can't serve. We can't do anything to get past what sin has placed on our heads. It was a price far greater than you, got, you and I could ever dream of paying. Sin had kidnapped us and sentenced us to death. We were trapped. We were enslaved. Sin, we were bounded by our sin. But Christ, in Christ alone, he said, wait, just a moment. He said, my life, my blood, I can pay that ransom. 
I can pay that ransom. It's enough. My life, my blood is enough for that ransom. So what Jesus did is he wrote that check on the cross. And then he cashed it when he walked out of that tomb on the third day. Jesus is our ransom. So now what? In light of that truth, how do we respond? And I, I try to think of a different way to say it because it sounds cliche. I didn't know what else. I, I, I literally it was like, I, I spent some time trying to think of a better way to say this, but I couldn't. But anyways, pursue greatness, right? This is what, this is what we have to do. So I'm convinced that when I die and go to heaven, I'm going to see people in heaven who have or tangibly, been tangibly rewarded for their obedience far greater than me. I truly believe that. And these are people that you and I will have never heard of. We will never know who they are. Because there's not going to be books written about them. There's not going to be movies written about them. There's not going to be viral videos about the things that they've done. Why? Because the people who tend to do things in service of other people tend not to be too great in the eyes of others. But they are great in the eyes of God. So for us, we have to think, man, what are we doing in the, that is great in the eyes of God? What are the kind of things that we're pursuing on a daily basis? Are we pursuing greatness in this life, or are we pursuing greatness in the next? Next, and the last thing is pursue sacrifice. Taking Jesus' lead, some of us may need to reorient our life. What I'm, what I'm praying for you and praying for myself this morning is that, that maybe God will put someone on your heart and on your mind this morning that when you walk out of here that you need to serve this week. I don't know who it is. It could be a coworker, It could be a neighbor. It could be a family member. It could be somebody sitting right next to you. I don't know. But I hope, that they, I hope God puts them on your heart this morning. That you will serve them well this week. That you will look to Jesus' example of this. And we will serve them in any way that we can. So today, we get to celebrate in a pretty tangible way what Jesus talks about in 1045. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so what Jesus does is he becomes our sacrifice. He becomes our ransom. He pays that debt for us on the cross. So this morning we're going to take communion together. And I just want to invite you, if you're a follower of Christ, you can join in with us this morning. If you didn't get your elements on the way in, you can slip out, get some, go for it. Um, there may be somebody in here passing some baskets out. If you didn't get one, just, just raise your hand. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take this. This is a physical representation of that ransom that Jesus talks about in Mark 10.45. Because what we know in the story like I said, is they're on the way to Jerusalem. They're on the way to Jesus' death. And then Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He is welcomed like a king. And then a few days later, he huddles up with his disciples in a room on the night before he is to die like a criminal. Oh, what a difference a week makes, right? And so what he does is he gathers the disciples and they have a meal together. And we see Paul talking about this in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. So this morning, let's take the bread together, remembering Christ's sacrifice and the ransom that was paid for us. Let's take the bread together. Verse 25 says, In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning, as we take the cup, let's remember the sacrifice, the blood that was spilt for us. And let's proclaim his death until he comes. And let's pray that he comes quickly. Amen? Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your sacrifice and for your example. God, you are so good to us, just as we sang this morning. So, so good. God, even when we don't deserve it, you love us. Even when we continue to fall and continue to sin, God, you forgive us. God, your grace is new every single morning. God, you are good. And it is only by your blood, the blood that was shed for us on the cross, it's only by your blood that we can stand before you blameless, sinless, washed white as snow. God, I pray that we be a people that live every single day in the light of that reality, that we have been bought with a price. God, that we were once kidnapped, we were once enemies of you, God, you paid the ransom to free us. And we should live as free people. God, I pray as we sing this song, nothing but the blood. God, if there's anyone here that does not know what that means for them in their lives, they've never thought about that, they want to know you, they want to be in relationship with you, God, I pray that your spirit would move this morning. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.